This episode was made possible by the generous support of listeners like you. For more information, please visit patreon.com slash author Chris Luster. You're listening to The Raven and the Writing Desk, the weekly podcast about the writings of Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. This is episode 209. Greetings, Metamorphs! Welcome back to The Raven and the Writing Desk. I am Chris Lester, the creator and head author of the Metamorph City Story Universe. You can learn more about me and my work at chrislester.org and metamorphcity.com. Each week, I share a piece of my fiction with you, available in audio for the first time anywhere. I'll also tell you what's new in my life and my writing. So let's kick things off with this week's story. Today I'm bringing you Chapter 67 of my Metamore City novel, The Lost and the Least. If you're new to this show, don't start here. Go back to Episode 143 to hear this story from the beginning. The following recap will contain spoilers. The last two months have put Kate through an emotional ringer. It began with the ambush at the Citadel parking lot, near the end of Things Unseen. Waylaid by a syndicate strike team, Kate and the Lightbringers were forced to fight for their lives. During the battle, Kate hid under a veil and got the drop on one of the enemy soldiers, killing her with two bullets to the back of the head. Afterwards, Kate discovered that the dead operative was a vampire's thrall, her body covered with countless bite scars. The woman had not been a free-willed agent, but a slave, conditioned in body and mind to be a tool for her masters in the syndicate. In the time since, Kate has been haunted by flashbacks of the woman without a face. Kate was placed on administrative leave and assigned to weekly therapy sessions to help her process her feelings about the shooting, but Kate wasn't interested in taking a closer look at the demons inside her. Her therapy stalled, she remained unfit for field work, but she could only see the obstacles others had placed in her way. When a street rat named Lyle Delane asked her to find his missing neighbor, Kate saw it as a way of getting back to doing the work that shaped her identity. That missing person's case led her to the bigger mystery of a string of murder kidnappings, a mystery that would eventually lead her to the Brotherhood of the Sepulchre and a sinister plan to unleash an imprisoned god. With help from an unlikely band of allies, Kate foiled that plan. The portal to the shackled god is closed again. The Brotherhood is on the run. Captain Montgomery has been given command of Special Investigations Division, and Kate and David will be working for him once more. But the trauma Kate suffered hasn't gone away, and after nearly getting herself and her friends killed, she is no longer able to ignore it. She may never be able to fire a gun without suffering flashbacks. She may never be fit for field work again. That's fine with Montgomery. He wants Kate to start taking on more of the responsibilities of a police lieutenant, heading SID's terrorism task force. But for Kate, this is a big change. The life she knew, the identity she carried, has come to an end. Now, she has to figure out what it looks like to move forward. The Lost and the Least a novel of Metamore City 
Written in Red by Chris Lester. Chapter 67 Wednesday, June 6th It was evening when Kate arrived at Brightleaf General Hospital. As they had arranged, Lyle Delane was waiting for her in the front lobby. The little rat morph sat reading a well-worn paperback novel, but he slid it into his backpack and got to his feet when he spotted her. "'Miss Kittridge,' he said, bowing deeply. "'Thank you for calling me.' Kate returned the bow just as deeply, though she still towered over him when she did it. "'Of course. It's the least I could do. Come on, they're waiting for us.' Kate led Lyle down to the offices of the Forensic Investigation Division. It was after normal business hours, but Morgan waited in the front office to let them in. Kate made introductions, and then Morgan took them back into the morgue. Mrs. Roberts had been pulled out of the storage lockers and laid out in one of the smaller back rooms. Morgan's assistants had dressed the body in an old pink sweater and a long skirt. While the clothes were thrift store cast-offs, they were clean, and they at least gave the old woman a measure of dignity. A long cardboard box sat on the floor at the back of the room, half filled with a bed of shredded paper. It wouldn't have been big enough to hold Kate, but for the little cat morph there would be plenty of room. Mrs. Roberts' next of kin declined to take custody of the body, Morgan said, her voice subdued. None of them live in the city anymore, and I gather they weren't exactly close. Lyle sniffed and wiped at his eyes. No, ma'am. None of her relatives ever came to visit when she was alive. Guess I'm not surprised they didn't come now. He stepped forward and gently took the dead catwoman's hand. What will happen to her, ma'am? Her body is in the city's custody now. We have a contract with Fairview Mortuary for cases like this. She'll be cremated, and her remains will go to one of the local ash yards. She hesitated. If you'd like to give her a marker stone, you don't need the family's consent to do it. Lyle looked almost ashamed. I'd like to, ma'am, but I don't know if I can right now. Kate put a hand on the man's shoulder. I'll pay for the marker. Let me know what you want it to say, and I'll take care of it. Lyle looked up at her, his dark eyes wide. But... but you didn't know her? No, I didn't. Kate took Lyle's small hand in both of hers. But I know you. And I still owe you. Gravestones aren't for the dead, Lyle. The dead don't care. They're for the living. Tears brimmed up in Lyle's eyes again, and he wiped at them with his free hand. I guess so. Thank you, ma'am. Could I... could I have a few minutes with her? He looked over at Morgan. Is that all right? Morgan smiled kindly. Of course. Take as much time as you need. Kate and Morgan left Lyle alone with the body. Morgan beckoned her to follow, and they went into her office. Kate shut the door behind her. Did you get it? she asked. Morgan opened a drawer in her desk and withdrew a thin manila folder. I had to call in a few favors, 
and I owe a bottle of Southmoran whisky to a colleague in Marigand. But yes, we were able to get a positive ID. She handed the folder to Kate. Kate opened it to find a few sheets of paper. On top was an enlarged photocopy of a University of Marigand student ID. The woman in the picture was indeed blonde. Kate had been wondering about that, since she'd been wearing a blonde wig when Kate killed her. The skullcap the woman wore underneath it had concealed her own hair, so Kate had never known what color it was. Kate looked more closely at the photograph. The girl had high cheekbones, a pert nose, cute dimples, and a bright, brilliant smile. Kate stared at the image for a full minute, burning it into her eidetic memory. This girl had haunted her for two months as the woman without a face. Kate wanted to make sure she never, ever forgot it. She looked at the name on the ID card. Melody True, she said, mostly to herself. A pretty name for a pretty girl, Morgan observed. Melinda Tane sounded less fake. I guess her parents must have been free spirits or something. She turned to the next page, which was a summary of the public records Morgan had been able to dig up on Melody. There was a birth certificate, her school records from preschool through graduation, and a ground car driver's license from the province of Mirador. No arrest records, no police contact of any kind. Nothing, that is, until her missing persons case had been opened in November 1992. Melody had been just twenty years old at the time. Two years younger than me, Kate thought. Obviously, the case had never been solved. The last page in the folder was a copy of a news clipping from the Merrigan Daily Post. Merrigan U. Sophomore Missing, the headline said. The article was accompanied by another photo of the smiling Melody, and she was wearing a university skyball uniform. Oh, Eli. Kate shut the folder and closed her eyes. A hundred skyball matches flickered through her memory. Pickup games at the community court in Ellentown, the varsity league in high school, and the university championship in senior year, where a knee injury had ended Kate's shot at the pros. Once upon a time, and not all that long ago, Skyball had been as much a part of Kate's life as her magic. That girl could have been me. Do we have any idea how the vamps got her? Kate asked. Who did this? Who took this girl and turned her into a thrall? Nothing yet, Morgan said. I asked Amelie to help me make a few discreet inquiries, but it was eight years ago. We may never know. Kate set the folder down on the desk and put her back to it, leaning against the office door. She felt miserable. A part of her wished she still didn't know that she could leave the woman she killed anonymous, something less than fully human. But that part of her was wrong. It was important to know. It was important to remember. Melody True hadn't always been a syndicate assassin, brainwashed and conditioned to obey her master's every murderous command. Once, she had been a girl with a pretty smile, who liked to play skyball and dreamed about her future. Gentle arms wrapped around Kate, and she turned into the embrace, 
resting her cheek against Morgan's head. Her own arms found their way around Morgan's waist, and they held each other close. I'm here for you, Kate, Morgan whispered, her breath coming out warm against Kate's ear, a sure sign she had fed recently. Whatever you need, I'm here. Kate ran a hand over the back of Morgan's head, then through her long, dark hair and down her back. It felt so good to be with her like this. Morgan's skin was soft and warm, and she smelled like henna and jasmine, and there was strength and comfort and pleasure and the promise of new discoveries just waiting there inside her arms, her lips, her touch. Kate's body thrilled with excitement, anticipation, and curiosity. Fuck it, she thought. I'm tired of being sad. Let's see where this goes. Then she gripped the hair at the back of Morgan's head and kissed her. Instantly, Morgan melted into her touch, moaning with pleasure and need. The sound stoked the fire in Kate even hotter, and she turned and pressed Morgan hard against the door, pinning her there with their hips together. Their tongues wrestled back and forth, thrusting and receiving in turn. Morgan broke the kiss with a sound halfway between laughter and frustration. You are so damned tall! Her hands snaked around and gripped Kate's shoulders. Then she hoisted herself up and wrapped her legs tightly around Kate's waist. Kate gasped in surprise, then laughed, and reached down with both hands to support Morgan's weight. Her ass felt incredible, strong muscle under shapely curves, and the thin, soft fabric of her scrubs left little to the imagination. Kate kissed her again, lightly, and grinned. Gods, I want you. Morgan looked both completely delighted and a little puzzled. She was also breathing hard, which Kate supposed was some kind of reflex from her pre-vampire days. So I gathered, she said, laughing. She reached up with one hand and gently caressed Kate's face, tracing fingers down cheek and jaw. Not that I'm complaining at all, darling, but where is this coming from all of a sudden? Kate snorted and rolled her eyes. Apparently it's coming from John. Both her dry amusement and her fondness for the man came out in her voice. Being with him is doing something to me. I'm picking up some of his essence, absorbing it into my aura. She shrugged. Part of my extra special inhuman accessories package, I guess. Morgan's smile faltered. Wait, are you saying that sex with John is... What, turning you into a succubus? That surprised another laugh out of Kate. What? No, no. I'm still me. I'm just bi now, apparently. And really horny. Morgan was starting to feel heavy now, so Kate carried her over to the edge of the desk and sat her down. She took Morgan's face in both hands, ran her thumbs tenderly over her cheeks. I love you. I always have. But for a long time, you've wanted something from me that I couldn't give. Now I can. I don't understand how this all happened, but I know what I feel. And I want to explore it with you. She leaned in for another kiss. 
For a moment, Morgan returned it, and Kate could feel the passion and longing that Morgan had kept bottled up inside her for so long. And then, to Kate's astonishment, Morgan broke away and raised her hand to Kate's lips. Kate stared at her, confused. Morgan? Morgan lowered her head and closed her eyes. Her back was as straight as a board, and Kate could feel the muscles tensing in her arms and legs where their bodies touched. After a long moment, she spoke. I want this, she said, her voice barely above a whisper. Gods, you have no idea how much. But I'm also afraid. Afraid? Kate asked, feeling hurt. Afraid of what? Morgan, honey, I would never hurt you. You'd never hurt me on purpose. She looked up at Kate then, her dark eyes wide and brimming with tears. But you said it yourself. You have these feelings because you're with John. There's something he did to you. So how do you know they're real? Kate winced. I've been wondering about that for the last two weeks, she admitted. Look, you know me. I'm a hands-on girl. If I want to work something out, I'd jump in and work it out. If I sat and stared at my belly button until I knew what I wanted, I'd never do anything. Apparently, this struck Morgan as especially funny, because she started giggling uncontrollably through her tears. No, she said, gasping for breath. You've <laughs> never been much for sitting still, have you? Another fit of giggles. Kate was beginning to feel slightly annoyed. Really not, no. Is there something wrong with that? Not at all. Morgan smiled up at her fondly, reaching up to touch Kate's hair. But try to see it from my perspective for a moment. I don't just want you for a night, darling. If we're going to do this, I want us to be together. Kate frowned. But what about you and Ava? Morgan shrugged one shoulder. What about you and John? I didn't say I wanted us to be exclusive, Kate. But I do want it to be real. Kate nodded to herself, thinking through the implications. And if we get into something and then my sexuality changes again, it would be worse than never being together at all, Morgan agreed. Kate's cheeks flushed with embarrassment. She'd been so focused on how she felt right now that she hadn't been thinking about the long-term consequences. And that's been a running theme for you, hasn't it? She thought. Kate, hun, you've got to work on that. Gods, I'm sorry, Morgan. I'm an idiot. She lowered her head and started to turn away. Morgan caught her wrist and drew her gently back again. I'm not saying no. I am saying let's slow down. This is an experiment, right? Kate nodded. So let's treat it that way, Morgan said, sounding more excited. Let's be scientists about it. Kate rolled her eyes. That is so very you. Love me, love all of me, Morgan said in an impish tone. But seriously, darling, let's go on a few dates, have some sleepovers, cuddle and make out a few times. Let's tiptoe up to the edge of this and see if you still want it. I promise not to hate you if the answer is no. 
but let's experiment, and let's definitely try to find out what this power of yours is, where it comes from, and how it works. If we know that, then maybe we'll know whether this change is something we can trust. She took Kate's hand and squeezed it. Besides, understanding yourself is never a bad thing. Take it from one who knows. Kate squeezed her hand back, then nodded her acceptance. Part of her was disappointed that she would have to wait longer to explore these new feelings, but Morgan's advice made a lot of sense. Maybe it is time to figure out where I came from. She bent down and hugged Morgan, and her friend returned the embrace warmly. You're pretty smart, you know that? So they keep telling me, Morgan said wryly. They parted, and Kate cocked an eyebrow. Also, you must have a hell of a lot of self-control. She nodded to the empty space behind the desk. I thought sure I'd have you naked on the carpet by now. That surprised a laugh out of Morgan, and then her eyes went distant and thoughtful. What is it? Kate asked. Something wrong? Morgan shook her head as a small and private smile crept onto her lips. Now, just a question I've been wrestling with. I got an answer just now, and it wasn't the one I expected. She looked up at Kate, and the smile broadened. Thank the gods. They came back out of the office to find Lyle waiting by the door. The fur around his eyes was wet, his breathing a little ragged. He stood up a little straighter as they approached. Thank you, ma'am. And you too, ma'am, he said, to Kate and Morgan in turn. I'm ready to go now. All right. I'm going to stay for a bit, but I'll walk you out. Kate leaned over to Morgan's ear. Is she still here? she asked, keeping her voice low. Morgan met her eyes and nodded. I'll get her ready for you. Kate walked Lyle out of the morgue and back to the front entrance of the hospital. So listen, she said as they walked. My apartment's at Serenity Arms. You know the place? Lyle's whiskers stood out. That's the one with the succubi, right? Right. So my landlady, Miss Fallon, she does this big family-style dinner for the residents every night. The food's amazing, and the company's even better. I was wondering if you want to come as my guest sometime. A flurry of emotions ran across Lyle's face. Surprise, delight, embarrassment, anxiety. He looked down at his hands and started rubbing them together. Gosh, ma'am, that's very kind of you. But, um, I'd hate to impose. No imposing, Kate said firmly. Didn't you hear me? I said she feeds the whole apartment building. Your tiny ass isn't going to put a dent in that, all right? In spite of himself, Lyle chittered a laugh. Besides, Kate said, thumping him gently on the back, I've been in my own little world too much lately. I could use another friend. Lyle smiled up at her, though his tail still twitched nervously. It, it does sound nice. Kate thought of the little man's paperback and had an inspiration. Anyway, I've got to show you the library. You wouldn't believe how many books Ms. Fallon has. Lyle looked up sharply. Books? 
Hundreds, Kate said confidentially. Maybe thousands. Every kind of book you could imagine, and we can borrow them whenever we want. Kate saw a light fill his big, dark eyes then, a desire that bordered on actual lust. Still, he tried to sound nonchalant as he said, Well, maybe I will stop by. Glad to hear it. Kate opened the front door of the hospital for him, and gave him a casual salute with her other hand. Keep it on the bright side, Lyle. Lyle turned around and walked backward a few paces as he returned the gesture. A little brighter every day, he said, then turned back around and walked off into the night. As she made her way back toward the morgue, Kate found her footsteps slowing, a tension building in her chest. She had asked Morgan to set this up for her, just like she'd asked her to find the information on Melody True. That didn't mean it would be easy. But going to therapy wasn't easy for Kate, either. She preferred to find ways around her problems, or, failing that, to attack them head-on. Sitting quietly with them took a different kind of strength than she was used to. Morgan met her at the doors and led her to another small back room. Like Mrs. Roberts, Melody had been dressed in thrift store clothing, in her case a dark blue blouse and a pink skirt. The Speltec jumpsuit she had been wearing had been confiscated by Citadel Police as evidence. Unlike Mrs. Roberts, Melody's head was wrapped completely in a paisley scarf. Kate stood next to Morgan in the doorway for a minute or so, just looking at the woman. Has her family been told yet? Yesterday. They're coming to take her home tomorrow. Kate's eyes drifted to Melody's bare feet. They were ashen gray like the rest of her skin, but apart from that, they looked... normal. Like a young woman's feet. She found herself obsessively studying the shape of the toes. Melody's second toes, she noticed, were longer than the big ones. I should have been the one to tell them. No, you should not, Morgan said firmly. You've tortured yourself enough already. That's the last thing your perfect memory needs. Kate just nodded wearily. Morgan was probably right. Do you need some time? Morgan asked gently. Yeah, Kate said. Thanks. Morgan squeezed her arm. I'll just be over in my office if you need me. She handed Kate the manila folder, the one with Melody's records inside. Then she closed the door, leaving Kate alone in the room with her victim. Slowly, almost like she was in a dream, Kate walked over to the room's single chair and sat down next to Melody. She looked at the dead woman's bare arm, studying the dozens of scars and bite marks that covered it. She lifted the woman's hand, felt the weight of it, studied her fingernails. The nails were short, but they had a fresh coat of clear nail polish, and they looked strong and healthy. Even as a thrall, probably half-mad and addicted to her master's will, Melody had focused on that one small detail of her appearance. Kate wondered if it had made her feel pretty. She gripped the hand with hers, 
and looked down at her own lap, because the world had gone blurry and she couldn't really see the hand anymore. She sat and listened to her labored breathing and felt the spots of wetness go pat, pat, pat on her bare legs. I'm sorry, she said, her voice coming out strained and twisted with grief. I'm so, so sorry. You couldn't help it. It's not your fault. It's not your fault. She bent over the woman's cold body, pressed her face against the blouse, shook with the force of her own sobs, and through it all, the words tumbled out of her like a litany. I'm sorry, Melody. You couldn't help it. It's not your fault. A while later, she found herself on the floor, her back pressed against the table where the body lay. She noticed that the folder had fallen on the floor, and she couldn't remember when she had dropped it. The papers had scattered. Carefully, reverently, Kate gathered them up again. Her fingers closed around the newspaper article, and she froze, focusing on Melody's smiling face. She took it in both hands and held it close, looking at the picture like she was looking into the girl's own eyes. No more, she promised. No more killing. You weren't a monster. You didn't deserve to die. She choked back a sob. <laughs> you were just a girl who got lost. Who got broken. She traced a finger around the outline of Melody's face. You were just like me. And that's the end of Chapter 67. Come back next time for the epilogue of The Lost and the Least, where we go inside the White Widow's hidden base, where secrets long buried will be revealed. Frank Herbert said, There is no real ending. It's just the place where you stop the story. So come along with me, and let's see where my stories have taken me this week. Here's your weekly writing report. I wrote 3,054 words this week, over the course of four and a half hours, for an average writing speed of 643 words per hour. As of Friday night, I've gone 23 days without breaking my chain. This week I continued working on None Shall Dwell Within. One interesting challenge in this novel is that I'm using Malcolm Ardvalos as a viewpoint character. The book opens with one of Malcolm's friends, an important senator, being assassinated, and Malcolm getting framed for it. Someone inside Malcolm's organization has betrayed him, so he has to take the radical action of submitting himself to the police, both to avenge his friend's murder and to expose the traitor in his ranks. We've had chapters before where we were looking over Malcolm's shoulder, but it was always a pretty cool, distant perspective. We weren't really inside Malcolm's head very much, and Malcolm himself was cool, collected, and in control. This book is different. Malcolm is troubled, uncertain, and off-balance. He's cut off from much of his power. 
The people he has to work with don't like him and don't trust him, and for very good reasons. And because he's in this precarious position, more of Malcolm's humanity is coming out. This does not mean Malcolm is the hero of the story. Malcolm is a bad person, and the fact that he's been falsely accused of this murder doesn't mean he hasn't killed other people before, or caused the suffering and misery of countless others. My goal in this book is to do for Malcolm what George R. R. Martin did for Cersei Lannister in the later books of his series. He got deep enough inside her head that we could empathize with her love of her children, her fear for their safety, her yearning to prove herself a worthy successor to her father. Martin didn't make us root for Cersei, but he did make us understand her, and feel for her, even when we really didn't want to. I hope by the end of this book, readers will feel something similar for Malcolm Ardvalos. The book is now in Chapter 5, and the manuscript is around 13,000 words. Over on the Patreon feed, we have a new patron this week. Say hello to Anthony. This week I started releasing my last batch of behind-the-episode commentaries for The Lost and the Least. The first episode, number 192, dropped on November 8th, and I'll be releasing a new one every other day through December 14th. If you've never listened to Behind the Episode, this is an unscripted show where I talk about the writing decisions, backstory, and influences that go into each chapter of my work. I'll discuss character motivations, Easter eggs, and other fun stuff that there isn't time to go into in the weekly show. Episodes are usually between 20 and 40 minutes in length, and patrons can either listen to them in the Patreon app, or subscribe to a unique RSS feed that's generated just for them. To get started, go to patreon.com slash author Chris Lester and sign up for a monthly pledge at any level. Even just a dollar a month makes a difference. And if you subscribe for $3 a month, you also get access to sneak peeks, art previews, character bios, and other cool stuff. Plus, if you become a patron before the end of November, you'll get an exclusive Metamore City holiday card mailed to you. These cards are one of my favorite parts of the Patreon experience, and they're my way of saying thank you for your patronage. Once again, that's patreon.com slash author Chris Lester, or follow the link in the show notes. And if you're already a patron, make sure your address and Patreon is up to date, so I can be sure I'm sending your card to the right place. If you'd like to share your thoughts about the show, send your feedback in text or audio to metamorecityfeedback at gmail.com. To leave a voicemail, dial area code 641-715-3900. Then enter extension 255-082, followed by the pound sign. My Facebook is facebook.com slash author Chris Lester. The fan group is fans of Metamore City on Facebook. And my Mastodon handle is at author Chris Lester at wandering.shop. If you like this show, take a minute and leave me a review in Apple Podcasts. It makes a big difference in helping people find the show. That's all for this week. I'll be back next time with more fiction, fresh off the writing desk. Until then, keep it on the bright side. This is Chris Lester, signing out.
The contents of this podcast are copyright 2018 and 2019 by Chris Lester and the Liminal Corvid Press. The show is released under a Creative Commons, Attribution, Non-Commercial, No Derivatives license. So don't change it, don't sell it, but feel free to share it all you like. For more information about this license, please visit creativecommons.org.